Well, good morning, everyone. What a great morning, is it not? Certainly, with everything going, um, just fantastic. It's great to be here. Appreciate your faith in the Lord and uh, as, we, as we work together. This morning, we're going to, uh, we're going to slightly review a couple of things we looked at uh, back in January. <clears throat> and then uh, we'll move along. This is uh, another lesson from this book, The Case for Historic Christianity by Ed Wharton from uh, Sunset um, School of Preaching, or Sunset Bible, I guess Sunset International Bible Institute, don't get that right, in Lubbock, Texas. And so uh, one of the teachers from back in the day, I don't know what back in the day means as far as time frame, but I guess some time back, how about that? And I've got to get the clicker. I put it in a pocket somewhere, I've got to find it. I told you all this was disaster when I get up here, so, no. All right, so if you'd like to see that book, if you want, want to jot down information from it or uh, the title or anything, you can get with me and certainly be glad to uh, show that to you. You can find it on Amazon, and it's a, it's a good read. It helps to build our faith. The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at evidence from the burial tomb. <clears throat> All right, so previously we looked at uh, how facts prove the existence of Jesus in history, you might remember, or you may have blotted that out, that's okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go back over it. Uh, we looked at contemporary writing of that time, as well as historic uh, reliability of the New Testament and how the manuscripts that we have now prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we hold in our hands today is the same as what was written at that time. It's no different and how it stands up against other writings of the same time period as we look to build our faith from the knowledge of the truth. And so in review, you know, the goal that we have, of course, with all of this is to strengthen our faith. Uh, and you say, how? Well, we'll try to answer that. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing the word. And so um, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, well, what is faith? Well, there's three, uh, as you see on the screen, three different um, uh, versions there of what that faith is. Being sure of what we hope for and convinced of what we do not see. Being con- com- or having confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Really like how the New King James puts it, the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. We like it when things have substance, don't we? Everything from food to what this other person is telling me. We like for things to have substance. And so we learn, we certainly appreciate uh, having substance and certainly evidence. We want to know about things. And so what are we being convinced of or assured of or have evidence about? Verse 2 there, the universe was formed at God's command and so what is seen was not made out of what what was visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Otherwise, what are we even doing here, right? And so we, we want to, uh, to have faith. And so 2 Peter chapter 1, or yeah, 2 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 12 says, his divine, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge not the fake knowledge, the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So just a reminder as we work through this, um, knowledge is not the opposite of faith, rather they work together. 
Uh, it doesn't work against faith. Our faith is built up by the knowledge of these things, just as the apostles were built up by their knowledge of Jesus' resurrection and seeing the evidence. Uh, you might remember the story of Thomas. In John chapter 20, <clears throat> Jesus said to Thomas, reach, reach here with your finger. See my hands? Reach here and uh, uh, reach here your hand and put it into my side. And, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And so Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said <clears throat> to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And we believe because certainly we have evidence. And we have faith in God based on the things that he teaches and tells us. And so today, uh, we're going to look at uh, a little bit more about the resurrection of Jesus. It's good to remember Christianity is far more than a philosophy. It's not merely an ethical system. It's a redemptive system. Christianity is belief in Jesus, the real person of history. Remember, we said that several times. The real person of history and everything that he did, including redeeming us by dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead, proving himself to be the Son of God. So Christ's resurrection, as presented in the Gospels, is founded on the evidence from the burial tomb of Jesus. The Gospels are reliable records of fact and not fiction. And so it is real history. So there are some implications that go with this real history. If Jesus was resurrected from the dead, it is necessarily implied that he is the Son of God and the Bible is indeed the Word of God. And so those implications are that uh, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Resurrection is obviously a sign of deity, People can't raise themselves from the dead. I can't do that. I don't think you can do that, can you? Can you? No. Okay. Just making sure. Um, if Christ was raised from the dead, then he is totally trustworthy. Totally. Completely trustworthy. And all of his claims have been sustained. And so the resurrection proves the Bible is the word of God. So he stated that uh, the apostles would be guided by the Holy Spirit to teach those trustworthy things. Both their preaching and their writing should be the very words of God. And Luke confirmed this in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, <clears throat> when he said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is what Jesus told the apostles. <clears throat> if the resurrection was fake or false, the apostles would not have received this guidance and the Bible would be false. And Paul also confirmed these things when he said in 1 Corinthians um, that the, the uh, word was revealed to us by the Spirit, through the Spirit, and even angels longed to look into those things. And so when Jesus taught the apostles, uh, when he was on the earth with them, they didn't fully understand everything that was going to happen, but they were learning along the way. And then when Jesus died, they still didn't quite understand and then when they received uh, the, the guidance, this promised Holy Spirit, and Jesus said, he'll bring to your remembrance everything that I taught you. I don't know about you. I can't remember things. And Jessica will tell you this. I can't remember things five days ago, let alone three years ago. It gets very selective, usually on the positive things about myself, right? Um, 
But I have a hard time remembering. So how would the apostles have been able to remember every single thing that Jesus taught him over three years? Wouldn't been able to do it. And so Jesus promised that. You see, God is not unreasonable. He knows our limitations. On the other hand, he also knows what we're capable of. So we've got to be careful with that too. And so, you know, this Bible, it's not by chance. It's not by chance that they remembered what Jesus taught them. It's not, well, my memory's kind of foggy, but uh, here's what I think he said. No, the Holy Spirit guided them into all truth. So, as was read, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, John's account of that resurrection. <clears throat> and we're going to look at John because he says uh, very plainly that, uh, that these were written so that you may believe. And so we're going to follow through John's account here and look at a few things in verses 1 through 8. Um, four facts to consider surrounding the tomb. The stone had been rolled back and the tomb was open. The tomb was empty. The grave cloths were lying in the tomb. And it was Sunday, the first day of the week. So John says that the disciple who came first to the tomb saw and believed. The matter is a statement of fact, a simple statement of fact. His belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead is stated at precisely this point in order to draw our attention to the obvious conclusion which this disciple had reached on the basis of the facts. He wanted us to know what he saw and why he believed. The whole function of reason is to draw a logical conclusion from the evidence. Note, we are not told that he believed before he saw the evidence, are we? He believed once he saw the evidence. When the evidence is trustworthy, it's not difficult to reach a believing conclusion. All right, so let's take a closer look at these four facts. One and two, that the tomb was open and that the tomb was empty. Being the reasonable reasonable people we are, Jessica is going to laugh at me because I'm not reasonable. No, yes, I try to be reasonable. Um, Being the reasonable people we are, what is the first question that comes to mind when we talk about the empty tomb? Who opened the door and took the body? That's usually kind of uh, like a a start of a mystery show, right? Who did this? Who went in and took that? So if we can eliminate, well, there are only two possibilities. It's either human or it's divine. That's it. There are no other possibilities of how that tomb was empty. Either somebody took him or he did what he said he did. So we're going to kind of look at that evidence today. So if we can eliminate the human element as a cause, that leaves us with only one conclusion, that it was supernatural. So let's look at the human possibilities. Did the disciples steal Jesus' body? Matthew records that sufficient steps were taken to prevent such a thing. In Matthew 27, 62 and following, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. 
They were already thinking about it, weren't they? This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So it's obvious that a Roman guard posted at the door would preclude the possibility of the disciples quietly stealing the body, would it not? Yeah, that would be hard to get past. By the way, the Jews bribed the guards to say that the body was stolen. And you can read about that in Matthew twenty-eight eleven. Who could ever seriously believe that professional armed Roman guards were all asleep at the same time and would not have been woken up by several people trying to roll a stone out of the way, especially since the stone was described in Mark as an exceedingly great stone. They would have had to move the stone, unwrap the body, rewrap the clothes, and so we can easily eliminate the disciples stealing the body as an option. And I know that's a quick quick overview of that, but it's good to point that out and understand that there were sufficient steps taken to prevent that from happening. So that brings us to the other human element. Was it the Jews that took him? The disciples or the Jews? So this would have been completely contrary to their own statement of intent and desire to keep the body of Christ in the tomb until after the third day. It occurred to them that if the disciples stole the body, then it would appear or look like at least for a while that Jesus made good on his claim to rise again after the third day. Now, this is one of the strongest arguments for me and one that I really appreciate being pointed out. Logic told them to secure the body in the tomb until the third day at which time they could go to the tomb, get the body, and with fanfare, parade it down the middle of town and show that Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's what they would have done if the body was still there. They wanted that body to be there. They didn't want it to be gone, so they wouldn't have taken it. So we can only conclude on the basis of the evidence, remember this is all about the evidence, that the disciples could not have done it and the Jews would not have done it. They didn't want that to happen. So that brings us to the next part. taking a look at the grave cloths. Their position, they were left lying there in the same folded position which formed the outline of the body when he was wound up in them for burial. Whether they were rather flat or whether the sticky spices held it up slightly in a cocoon shape, they were nevertheless still lying there. What's that? You take glue and paper, paper mache. Paper mache, something like that. If you've ever worked with that, um, you know, if that's not all the way dry and you take whatever's holding it up out, it kind of falls a little bit. It would be something kind of like that. And so the burial custom of the Jews, John chapter 11 teaches us something about this in the account of Lazarus. <clears throat> says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Here, Lazarus needed assistance to get out of those wrappings. And Jesus was prepared for burial in the same way that Lazarus was. John 19.40 tells us that taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, and this was in accordance with uh, Jewish burial customs. And so it was the same way, the same thing. And so just as Lazarus had to be helped out, well, if this wasn't uh, an act of uh, 
deity or supernatural. If Jesus didn't do what he said he would have done, that he, what he did, then he would have needed help to get out of those burial cloths. <clears throat> so it kind of goes back to that question again. Because he would have needed help. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then who by stealth silently rolled back the stone without the notice of the guards, unwrapped the body, then rewrapped the cloths up again with such skill that eyewitnesses couldn't tell, couldn't see any difference, and then carried away the body without being caught. You see, when you get to the facts, your faith soars in confidence in God. Now, there's also one other theory, the swoon theory. You may have heard of that. So-called swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. He passed out a little bit. Passed out on the cross, and then in the cool of the tomb, he was revived. And this theory totally disregards the fact that Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead after just a few hours on the cross. Remember the centurion who was in charge of execution? He confirmed the death. There's also another problem with this, with this theory. Uh, in order for this to be the case. Remember, Jesus was beaten how many times? 39. 40 minus 1. You know why it was 40 minus 1? Because the Jews couldn't count. How about that? No. Because they were afraid of miscounting and going over 40 times, so they did it 39. Hmm. There's some issues with that. That's another lesson for another time. So 40 minus 1, he was beaten and then stabbed and severely wounded as the spear was thrust upward into his side. He would have then had to have the strength, after all of this happening, getting beaten 39 times. By the way, it was a cat of nine tails that ripped out chunks of flesh every time it hit him in his back those 39 times or wherever it hit him. You may have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Kind of seen that reenacted a little bit. That's tough. That is tough to watch. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen it since the first time I saw it in the theater. That's hard to watch. Makes me think about my sin. So, beaten 39 times and stabbed. Not just uh, any old, not just a little uh, table knife. Hey, are you are you awake? Nope. Spear thrust up into his side. So he, after all of that happening, he would then have had to have the strength to get up, get out of those cloths, fix the cloths, roll the stone away from inside the grave. You see, facts will expose the folly of these kinds of theories. The evidence from history is more than sufficient to satisfy the honest mind and heart that the claims of the New Testament are true and accurate. That brings us to the significance of the third day, the fact that it was Sunday. Jesus prophesied that he would rise on the third day after death by crucifixion. <clears throat> Resurrection obviously implies a death, does it not? You can't be raised from the dead if there's not a death. However, Jesus specified death by crucifixion. Matthew twenty nineteen says, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the Jews made a number of attempts to kill him by different means. However, Jesus decided when, where, and how. Did you know that? 
John 10, 18, he says, No one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to bring it up again. Nobody caught Jesus. He didn't just go along for three years until he got caught. He chose, and you can take this very personally, he chose when, where, and how to die for you. That's what he chose. So it became common knowledge. Remember, the Jews were expecting it, and the sol- they had the soldiers placed at the grave, so it became common knowledge about this rising again on the third day. So that brings kind of uh, uh, to the question, kind of a little side study here. If Jesus was in the grave three days and nights, how do we fit those between Friday and Sunday? I struggled with that for some time, and I'm thankful for... Uh, uh, this little chart I'm about to show you. Uh, the Jewish method of counting days was not the same as ours. And Esther 4.16 actually gives us a clue to this. We find Esther exhorting Mordecai to persuade the Jews to fast, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. This was clearly in preparation for her highly risky attempt to see the king. Yet two verses later, we read, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. If three days and nights were counted in the same way that we count them today, then Esther could not have seen the king until the fourth day. And so this is completely analogous to the situation with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So what we have here is that Jesus died on Friday. That was day one. So in total, day one includes the day and the previous night even though Jesus died in the day. So, although only part of Friday was left, that was the first day and night to be counted. Saturday was day two, and Jesus rose on Sunday morning. That was day three. So therefore, by Jewish counting, we have three days and nights as Jesus rose on the third day. It should not be a surprise to us that a different culture used a different method of counting days. As soon as we adopt this method of counting, then all of the supposed biblical problems with this disappear. And so we understand how the third day is so important when Jesus said that he will rise again on the, on the third day. So <clears throat> that brings us to a conclusion. If Jesus was raised from the dead, his claims are true and he is the Lord. It's pretty simple. If not, then he was a liar and a cheat and a blasphemer. So how can we know which one is right? By the evidence. The function of reason is to sit in judgment on the evidence and to draw a conclusion. The facts are that there was a historical Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross, who was buried, and whose tomb was found empty on the third day even as he had predicted. And all these facts are recorded in reliable historical documents. As we talked about last time, how do we know that those documents are reliable based on the evidence? We have 500 times more evidence to believe that Jesus Christ is a real person of history than of Julius Caesar. And so that means if I'm going to 
draw by logical conclusion that Julius Caesar is a real person of history and the nation of Rome is a real nation of history, then I have to, by logic, conclude and admit and confess that Jesus is a real person of history. And that gets us started on the right track of understanding because then that puts us into another place. We say, okay, yep, Jesus was a real person of history. Then that moves me to say, well, then what he did, what he said, what he said he was going to do, what he did, is that real? And it kind of puts us in a corner. Because if we're going to accept that he's a real person of history based on the evidence, well, that evidence and those eyewitnesses also say that he did the things that he said he did. And so that brings confidence That helps us to have confidence in the Lord and confidence in knowing when I read this Bible, it is what God wants me to know. And that should bring us great joy and great excitement. So that brings us to another little conversation. Real quick. Do do any of you watch American Idol? Yeah, I see one head. (laughs) Oh, we watch that sometimes. The other night, Lionel Richie and Katy Perry and what's his name? Luke Bryan. Jessica knows. They were talking to this girl who came in. She didn't have much confidence in herself. She really didn't. And she kind of opened up after that. And, um, you know, she didn't make it. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to spoil it for you. <laughs> she didn't make it to the next, to the next round. Forgive me. But um, they told her, they said, you know, we feel like you already won this competition. And they talked about the old her before and after. And he said, did you find what you came here for? She said, yes. He said, you found some confidence? Yes. And I want to say, my friends, that's what the church The church has so much more to offer than what these folks see on TV. We have real confidence, not just in singing, not in being on TV in front of a bunch of people, but we're talking about eternal confidence, eternal questions. There are folks that are looking for that, and we all love those feel-good stories, don't we? I like that. I appreciate what they said to her because they were right. But that only lasts so long. Yet we have what lasts forever. So we can have joy and happiness and be excited that we can be a light in Jeffersonville and surrounding because we have that to share. And so I want to encourage us this morning to be excited about the gospel, to be excited when we have things like this happen this morning with the new brother in Christ. We have folks coming and placing membership here. When we are here together, I don't know about you, but I'm excited every single time that we get to be here. I'm excited and happy. And it's deep down inner joy. So I want to tell you one more thing about Jesus, and then we'll be finished. He is the ruler of righteousness. He is the authority of the ages. He is the holiness of heaven. He is the glory of God. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. That's my Christ. 
And I want you to come to know him for yourself. Do you want to know it? Sorry. You need to know him. He's the key to knowledge. He is the wealth of wisdom. He is the dawn of deliverance. He is the road to redemption. He is the highway to holiness. He's the gateway to glory. Do you want to know him? His love is limitless. His word is wonderful. His reign is righter. His yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. Oh, I wish I could introduce you to him adequately. But actually, he's indescribably irresistible. He's invincible. He's incomprehensible. He's incomparable. Yes, you can live without him. Or you can live with him, but you can't live without him. Yes, the Pharisees, they tested him. But they found out they couldn't defeat him. Pilate could not find any fault in him. Herod couldn't harm him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my Christ. That's my Lord. And that's my Jesus. Told you I wouldn't make it through reading this. Well, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever and ever. And after you get through with all the forevers, you ought to be able to say amen. Love you. Appreciate you. So thankful for you that we get to share in this road together.